The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. What would happen if you took a very serious running podcast and combined it with a the adventure jogger we're gonna find out because my guest on this episode is the host of the run smarter podcast a great like technical running podcast that's all about stats and charts and good cool things brody sharp is on the adventure jogger welcome brody Thanks for having me, Ryan. And like you say in the intro, running should be fun. So let's try and mix the two together. First of all, Brody, how in the hell did you come across a podcast called The Adventure Jogger? Did you lose a bet and had to listen to an episode or something? <laughs> I think um, I think the Apple podcast algorithm does a really good job of linking what you like and suggested podcast. And so yours was um, yours came up shining bright. And so I um, decided to have a listen and reach out. Because your podcast, like... What, I was talking with Dave Dillon from Chase the Summit last week, and they're really running podcasts do kind of come in, in lots of different varieties, but two major varieties, like serious technical running podcasts and then, you know, silly fun podcasts. And we kind of come from from two opposite ends of the running podcast spectrum. So this is going to be kind of fun to to kind of mix the two and see what happens. Yeah, for sure. I do like the I actually had a podcast prior to the run smarter podcast which was me interviewing runners Mm -hmm. and it was it no longer exists you can't find it anywhere but it was me like just interviewing inspirational stories and put on my like interviewer hat but this new podcast i'm doing which is 12 months old now is purely educational um if those want to be inspired uh, there's tons of other podcasts there but yeah. uh yeah focusing now on the the educational piece let's get kind of uh, a background on you brody what's your running story yeah cool so i uh am a physiotherapist or mm-hmm. a physical therapist by trade yeah. and it was probably around two or three years into my physio career that i decided to become a runner, just like a recreational runner. And I had a basketball career before that. And once that was over, I decided to start training. My sister wanted me to train for, help her train for a half marathon. And so I thought I'd do it, never done any like long distance running before. And yeah, caught the bug really quickly. And then recognized once I became a runner myself and started seeing runners in my physio clinic i just had this instant passion for wanting to get them back to pain-free running and wanting them to start uh achieving their like running personal goals or races that they had prepared Mm -hmm. for and yeah it just unleashed unlocked just like an inner passion of mine because yeah quickly caught the bug and then just quickly wanted to talk about you know what shoes you're wearing what's your cadence what's like and just wanted to continuously talk and talk and talk and decide just to follow that passion as soon as I recognized it. That's really incredible. You start the running, you're the physiotherapist or physical therapist, and then podcasting. You you, you launched your first podcast how long ago? Uh, So the first podcast that I did was probably about three years ago now. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was called the Everyday Running Legends and just a passion project just because I want to be around running more and more. Yeah. And that went for about two years, around about 120 episodes. Wow. And then 
when I um, decided to make this jump to the Run Smarter podcast, mm-hmm. essentially because it was really tied into me helping runners and I recognized there was a lot of misconceptions and I was constantly educating runners around the similar topics, similar um, topics kept popping up. Yeah. And so, I'm like, let me just do this podcast format to start educating runners and start like making how to make smarter training decisions because all runners, they want to run pain-free. Yeah. And if they are injured, they want to know what the best thing is to do. And they're often, conf- they're often like posting on blogs or Facebook groups and trying to find answers. And there's a lot of contradictory information yes. out there to rest, don't rest, keep running, stretch, don't stretch. And it's, um, that it requires a lot of clarity. And so that's what the, the aim of the podcast is yeah tailored towards most runners go to dr google when they're they're injured dr google or dr facebook and they get exactly all sorts of of uh of of advice some of it not many of it good most of it bad and of course if you go Mm -hmm. to your doctor that's a big problem when you're a runner brody and you know this uh if you go to an actual doctor who's not a runner for some reason, and I don't know when this started, MDs, I don't know if they have a class called, you know, discourage running from all of your patients, but a lot of MDs, not all of them, because I know some that are actually runners and, and have a, a good relationship with, with running, but a lot of medical doctors, when you tell them you run and you got an injury, they just like, ah, just stop running. You need to stop running, do something else, ride a bike, swim. I, I did, did you ever do an investigative report on why doctors hate running Brody? <laughs> uh, I can only just speculate, but I think it, if runners get injured so often, right. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so if you are a medical professional and you're constantly seeing these runners come in, they're constantly injured and, uh, it's easy to find a correlation being like running probably isn't good for you. Running's probably bad for your knees. Running's probably like you're better off probably doing something with less impact and, there's yeah that's sort of if they're constantly seeing people that are injured yeah then you can see how uh a belief is being like you know created in their minds but yeah like you say if you go to a, a doctor who is a runner they have a totally different perspective and they'll say yes you can still run yes you can get back to running but these are the steps you need to take um but i often get very frustrated when i see a runner yeah and they say that my doctor says i should never run again my doctor says running um just i'm not built for running or i'm not strong enough for running or based on all my injuries i shouldn't be a runner those sort of things do get created and runners believe it because if it's coming from a like a medical professional held in such high regard mm-hmm. who's had all these um qualifications or and yeah that we just hold them into a really high regard and really hold weight to what they say and so it it can be quite frustrating and uh when i hear it from my perspective and quite damaging to the runner themselves i was hoping you were going to say something like it's the big bike lobby like they're all getting money from from Schwinn and yeah, Trek. Maybe. <laughs> like, like, listen, we're gonna buy you a nice golf vacation. All you gotta do is make sure that you tell your 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 patients to not run to to ride a bike. Uh, you might be onto something, <laughs> Brody. Uh, running wise, how would you describe yourself as a runner? Are you a half marathon runner, marathon runner, ultra marathon runner? How how do you describe your running? recreational runner plus triathlete i like to mix things up i do i've done one full marathon several half marathons i like Mm -hmm. to run um i've 
recently, the last couple of years, found a love for trail running mm-hmm. and being really like the the hills and the terrain that's really, really t- challenging, but kind of around the, the eight mile, 10 mile, like 10K range yeah. is um, really nice for me. I really find a nice sweet spot there and really, really enjoy it, which is the main part. I don't race or train to win races. I just love what I do and love uh, hanging out with the running community. So um, finding love there. I do uh, have done um, half marathons internationally, like gone to Switzerland and gone oh, wow. to um, Berlin and just like started doing some races just for seeing different scenery. Love that aspect of things. And so, yeah, I do um, obviously, well, like I mentioned before, I do like doing some triathlons as well because if you are facing an injury or if you want to prevent injury, like the variety is really yeah. nice in the triathlon training. If you have like a foot issue, which I'm managing at the moment, swimming can be really good for foot issues yeah. instead of running. And you can just mix and match a whole bunch throughout your training and create and generate a lot of variety. I've always, I, I tried triathlon and I've always marveled at people that can do the swim well, because the swim mm-hmm. is the hardest part. I mean, and, and the people that can breathe on each side, it's incredible. Yeah. You know, I, I did one triathlon and I, and I looked like I was having seizures in the water because I just <laughs> reach up and, <gasps> and go back under every once in a while and, and go all over the course. I probably swam. It's so confronting. Yeah. I, 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 I probably swam 200 meters more than I should have just because I was zigzagging uh, all over the place. Uh, Brody, real quick where are you from originally i'm from melbourne australia okay all right and how long have you been here in the states i am living in australia right now oh okay all right oh yeah. you have okay oh wow the adventure joggers international how about that <laughs> wow that's that's pretty that well that's that's cool i'm glad we have one listener uh in australia uh, Brody. <laughs> I'm sure you have a couple. Yeah, one or two, one or two. Um, we were talking <laughs> when I was talking to Dave the other day, we we're talking about how Australians do have the best slang. You guys really do have fantastic slang. We love to shorten all of our words (laughs) and then just assume that people know what we're talking about. (laughs) What is your favorite piece of Australian slang? Um, Well, I've actually had, I've actually traveled around the States a whole bunch Mm -hmm. and we just like general chit chat, people would have no idea what we're saying. Like if we say like a servo, and that's like a service station, but we call them servos. Ooh. Just We just shorten everything and put an O at the end. And then people just have no idea what the hell we're talking about. So that'd I love be a good ser- example. I love the servo. Um, and I talked about this in the past episodes. Bottle O is my favorite piece of yep. Australian slang for a liquor store. Yes. It sounds so much Very better much so. than, a, than a liquor uh-huh. store. All right. So so let's, Brody, let's let's kind of conquer some of these running myths. And let's mm-hmm. you can go at this with your with your scientific background, with your long history uh, of schooling. I was going to say student loans, but you probably don't have those as bad as we have them here in the States. Uh, but let's go ahead and tackle some of these one by one. One of the biggest running myths, and it's something we talked about, well, hinted at a little earlier uh, when we were talking was, you know, all doctors, of course, say that running running is bad because it what it wrecks your knees does running really increase your likelihood of an, a, a, a knee problems brody no <laughs> uh there it's very it's a very common misconception and it kind like all these misconceptions most of the ones we're going to talk about today they actually they kind of make sense like if yeah. you're if you're running and you're putting two to three times your body weight, every single step that you take, there's going to be shock going through your body. There's going to be loads that your joints have to handle. Mm -hmm. And it almost seems if you don't know a lot about the structure of the body and how the body organizes itself, you're probably thinking that like 
a knee joint is finite. It just has a certain amount of load, a certain amount of repetitions that it can handle before it starts. Like the wear and tear starts to slowly become more degenerative and yeah. it slowly starts to, um, yeah, cause issues, start that wear and tear process and eventually gets to the stage where you start to generate some sort of knee osteoarthritis and then it just gets worse and worse and worse as the um, condition develops and then you just have to give up on running. That's what most people think. And right. They think that the, the knee joints themselves are just finite, mm-hmm. but there's actually a lot of evidence to back up that that is not the case. And there, if I can talk about one study that was covered a whole bunch of um, runners, it was around like 50,000 to 100,000 people in this study. Like they did oh, this wow. population study where they looked at the prevalence of osteoarthritis in runners and non-runners. Yeah. And so they looked at all these people and said, okay, who are getting osteoarthritis? Is the people who are runners, the the sedentary type, mm-hmm. um, the elite runners, where, where are we looking at? And they found that runners, recreational runners, over their lifespan, the likelihood of them developing knee osteoarthritis was around about 10%. And they found that, no, sorry, the the sedentary um, population was okay. around about 10%. Gotcha. The runners, the recreational runners, were somewhere around the 3 to 5%. And so, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. If we believe that it's a wear and tear, you know, impact on the body, that kind of thing. Elite runners themselves were a little bit higher. They were around 12%. Mm-hmm. But they within that study, they... Um, categorize the elite runners as they had to be paid to be a runner yeah. or they had to represent their nation. So, very, very top tier elite runners. Right. And they're kind of around the same, I guess, prevalence as sedentary. We're looking at 10 to 12% is not a whole lot. Yeah. And so, they're following the same odds of getting osteoarthritis as the sedentary type. Whereas these runners, uh, the recreational runners, they're at a, a, a lower uh prevalence of getting osteoarthritis and then you think well how does that make sense at all yeah because um, you think about the, it yeah you, you, you it just you think about just the numbers there and you would think that oh my god there'd be such a greater percentage of recreational runners having knee problems and osteoarthritis in their knees than just the average population but it's just not there that that's that's really looking at that data and this again this is not a study of five people you know, it's like, this is not, you know, some anecdotal evidence that some doctor has seen. This is this is yeah. like was a huge study. That's surprising. A little even a little yeah. shocking. So then it go, then asks another question, like, why are these runners less likely to get osteoarthritis? Yeah. And so emerging evidence of the last 10 years have shown that. Uh, we're talking about cartilage. So cartilage is like the smooth surface at the ends of the bones, mm-hmm. which will degenerate if you do have osteoarthritis it's that that's kind of where the wear and tear happens yeah but there's evidence to show that if you um, contact the ground or if you have some sort of impact force that's generated through the body that actually stimulates cartilage growth and so there's almost like a build-up breakdown um, equation where as long as the build-up equates more than the breakdown part of the equation yeah then you start having healthier bones and you start having healthier tissue and so those who are uh who are running and impacting the ground actually generates a shock through the body which actually stimulates a lot of cartilage growth and so if we're looking at this equation of build-up breakdown it almost seems that 
the sedentary runners aren't doing enough to stimulate any cartilage growth, which is why they start developing osteoarthritis. But the elites who are developing at a similar rate, they're probably breaking down too much. So they've probably impacted their body a bit too much and haven't quite balanced out that um, build-up breakdown equation either. So they're almost on the other side of the equation where um, runners seem to fit this perfect sweet spot of they're stimulating their body enough, they're impacting enough on on the body to stimulate some growth. And in fact, if someone has low bone density, what we actually do for a rehab program is actually try and produce some sort of shock through the body and some ground reaction force where we're getting them to say, step off a small step and um, impact the ground with straight legs and actually generate a bit of a shock through the body. And that stimulates a bit of um, bone growth, a bit of cartilage growth. And that's what we use for management for people who have low bone density. That's wild, Brody. Um so form, I want to talk about the form plays into that because you will notice elite runners have more, far more often than not, will have a mid, a mid heel strike or sorry, a midfoot strike. When you watch elite mm-hmm. runners, they're not heel striking, but you look at a lot of recreational runners and there's a whole lot of heel striking going on. Does that play into what you were talking about as far as the shock to the system? Because I can imagine that a heel strike sends quite a bigger shock to the system than a midfoot strike. Does that kind of work into the equation at all? Uh, it's opening up another can of worms. Uh, the If you were to look at heel strike or initial contact, whether runners contact with the heel or the forefoot, mm-hmm. 85% of runners are heel contactors. Yeah. They do. Their initial contact is with the heel. Elites um, depends. Like if you're looking at elite marathoners, some like most... If you're looking at those who are four-foot runners, mm-hmm. um, there still are a lot of heel strikers, elite heel strikers who run marathons. Hmm. A lot of them still, they might not be as far in front of their body. Yeah. They might not contact with um, the toes pointed up as aggressively as a recreational runner, but still the vast majority of elite marathoners still contact with the heel, just not as much as um, a recreational runner might. So there's still around about 80% of uh, elite marathoners still contact with the heel, um, but they're more towards flat foot, if that makes sense. They're gotcha. still just contact with the heel, but still flat foot. Um, when it comes to like generating force and shock absorption through their body, um, if you do, if you're within the 10, 15% of runners who do contact with their forefoot, mm-hmm. you will have less of a ground reaction force. We call this like the vertical ground reaction force. Yeah. It's like a spike in um, load as soon as that heel hits the ground compared to the forefoot. So you're almost flattening out the curve if you contact with your forefoot. But um, when it comes to if we talk about whether it's safer to do so, what's mm-hmm. the best one to do. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're a heel or forefoot contactor. What you do need to focus on is how far in front of your body you're actually making that initial contact. Okay. Because if you contact with the heel and it's a lot more in front of what we call the center of gravity, mm-hmm. it's generating more braking force, which isn't, it's not necessarily what we're talking about before where that ground reaction force mm-hmm. stimulates growth. We're actually looking at a detrimental force that's actually decelerating you and not propelling you forward. So it's almost this, um, it's almost this counterproductive uh, force that we don't like because it generates uh, mm-hmm. braking force through the knee and through the hip when you're trying to move forward. So 
heel contact, forefoot contact, flat foot contact doesn't necessarily matter as okay. long as it's closer to underneath your body when you are contacting, if that makes sense. No, I, I got gotcha. you. It makes a lot of sense. What is something a runner can do if you are a person that does heel strike far out in front of your body, center of gravity? What are some things you can do to kind of move that strike closer to your center of gravity? It's a good question. Like I tried different cueing for different runners because mm-hmm. some will work and click with others, whereas others might really struggle. Um, visual feedback, if you're running on a treadmill and you've got like a, a mirror in front of you or to the side, or if you film them and say, this is what's going on, this is um, where you're contacting, yeah. just get them to be more aware of what they are doing and correcting that. That can be quite nice. Um, other uh, other methods we can try is increasing their cadence. So their cadence would be how many steps they take per minute. Okay. And in some cases, not all cases, but those who um, do contact really far in front of their body, their cadence can be quite low. Gotcha. And so sometimes just getting them to increase their cadence, potentially just get a metronome in front of them and just get them uh, stepping to a certain beat to a certain rate that's yeah. slightly above what their normal cadence is will just automatically mean that they have to take shorter steps and therefore they don't have the time to reach out in front of their body and make contact really far in front and naturally you'll film them again and naturally they won't have that really far um, forward reaching technique and so um, sometimes just cueing sometimes just getting them to be aware of how they're running and what we want to do um, to correct it and then sometimes just some cadence really nice cadence training can just be um, effective. It doesn't have to be really complicated. It can just mm-hmm. be that simple. Um, is there a sweet spot for cadence that, that, that you like to see? Uh, when I first graduated, there was this talk about the magical number of 180. You want to step at 180 steps per minute, which is three steps per second, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite fast. Yeah. And that was meant to be the magic number for a runner to be the most efficient. Mm-hmm. And, it's the evidence that has now emerged since I graduated was now there's more of a range and the optimal number varies from runner to runner because every runner is different. Right. And the, I like to have some sort of range. I think one between 165 and 185 is a pretty nice okay. range. If someone falls within there, I wouldn't really want to change too much. Um, but keep in mind those really tall runners, those ones above six foot tall, they will have a naturally lower cadence. Right. So they can get their their optimal cadence might be around 160. You just don't know. It gotcha. depends on the individual. Okay. But I've had the, the privilege of talking to some researchers on my podcast and one of them, uh, Dr. Izzy Moore, talks about running performance and what the ideal cadence is for people and she has a really nice chart that people follow through and it's essentially like looking at their heart rate on a treadmill when they're running and getting them to run at their preferred speed at different cadences and seeing where their heart rate is because if you're taking steps too quickly for you yeah your heart rate is going to increase gotcha and if it's too low it's going to be impacting your body too much and your heart rate will start increasing as well so it's almost trying different cadences and seeing what your lowest heart rate is. And usually that's pretty close to your ideal, efficient, um, perfect number. So, mm-hmm. yeah, everyone's different. There is a range out there, but every run is different. What is there something to be said about natural biomechanics? A runner, just the, the way they go, if they go out and run, 
the way their body naturally runs. I know there's people on both sides of the fence saying that there is a optimal running technique for everybody where everybody's got to run this certain way. And if you do this, the magical key will unlock and all of your dreams will come true. And then there's another group of people, Brody, that say, you know, your natural body mechanics are optimal. Your body knows how to do the things it needs to do. Where does science fall into that that uh, much much had on social media argument? Yeah, it's kind of asking the question like, do you need to uh, have technique training? Would technique training make you a better runner? Yeah. Um, and there's it's open to debate, and the the evidence is open to debate as well. There's no conclusive answer, but there are s- some studies to show that you can run at your natural, what feels natural for you, mm-hmm. what's like innate in your in your body to based on your um, based on your feel. If you are an elite, say athletics, short distance. Um, sprinter then technique training will be very good for you Mm -hmm. um it's not an endurance event it's more sprint so technique is really key for that right um those style of runners uh if you are elite and wanting to improve by a couple of percent and you're really competing hard then yes i think there is some space for technique training Mm -hmm. um that's if you want to compete at at the top like one percent of runners yeah if you fall within the the vast majority of runners, most of you don't need any technique training. Like you say, people will follow, will just fall into their natural uh, running technique that's that feels natural for them, feels innate for them, and that that's when like you can if you have a, a natural kind of shoe, that will like everything will just fall into place per se. But then we have the added complexities of people buying really bulky shoes right. so they can get away with an unnatural um, an unnatural style of running, right. particularly if they have a lot of foam and a lot of protection underneath their heels and then they can get away with a lot, um, then they might fall into something that's a bit unnatural for them or a little bit... Um, not innate for them, if that makes sense. Are and you are you talking directly we- to me in my hokas? Are you <laughs> slamming me in my hokas, Brody? Hey, hawkers ho- <laughs> can be very good, but I think the like you can get away with a lot more. Yeah, and like we say, like when we're talking about before with the reaching really far forward and impacting the ground, a lot of breaking force can go through your body. You can get away with that with a lot of padding and a lot of like a heel raise in a shoe and a lot of um, support. And so that's where we we have a fine line because if you change your shoes, you're going to be running differently anyway. Right. If you um, go to barefoot, I don't recommend running in bare feet, but you're going to change the natural way your body runs anyway. So shoes do play a bit of a role in this uh, topic. You need to have Golden Harper on on your podcast. He's the founder of okay. Ultra uh, Shoes yeah. and he's got a great story behind, you know, finding people with knee problems and and making shoes in his in his toaster oven before Ultra became a thing. And he's he's a big he's big on running form. And I think you guys would have would just an incredible conversation, uh, you cool. know, on form like that. But when you're talking about uh, not needing a whole lot of uh, of advice or training to improve your stride. Brody, you're you're killing like a whole section of every bookstore. Because how many Damn. books have been written? <laughs> you need to run like this, Brody. You yeah. just killed a whole section of a bookstore. And there's been a lot of money made of like different running shoes and different insoles and different like devices, stretching devices, everything. Like they just flood all these advertisement ploys into things, and it's just not 
backed up by evidence. So um, there are some big changes that runners can make. They can change their running technique and transform their body um, like in the on the individual level. But yeah. when it comes to like the big, um, it, does it hold up? Does the evidence stack up? Then it's just not really the case. But like you say, sometimes a lot of these solutions can be really simple. Mm-hmm. And like I say on my podcast all the time, like a lot of these running injuries are due to training errors. They're due to doing too much too soon or making too an of abrupt change. And mm-hmm. so sometimes the the right management just might be doing tr- tweaks in training, but a lot of runners, they're very like highly focused on the fine details and they want to, they want to try and investigate their, like how they're tying their shoes. Do I need different shoelaces? And they need to like really hone in on the nitty gritty because the type of personalities that we usually are. Right. And that's what they like to investigate, but sometimes it can just be really broad, really simple solutions, um, which I find really refreshing and almost liberating, but uh, other people might suggest that they just want to try different supplements or try different stretches or try different shoes and have five different shoes that they like to choose from and take that approach. All right, Brody, I do want to get into stretching because that We'll get to that in a moment because that's going to cause a firestorm. Oh, get ready. It's going to happen, Brody. I have a feeling. But you talk about training mistakes. You probably see a lot of patients come into you and they're runners and they're injured. And I'm sure you go through a questionnaire trying to figure out what their training's like. And and Dr. Brody is able to, to figure out what the problem is, usually by figuring out the training mistakes that the, this person is, is, uh, is participating in, is doing, is making. What are the biggest training mistakes you think runners make nowadays? There, well, I think when runners do get injured, most of the time they can identify in themselves what's, what's gone wrong. They've usually, it's usually increasing their mileage too much or running too fast too soon. Mm-hmm. So increasing distance, increasing speed beyond their capacity to adapt. They've gone past what the body would usually start strengthening up and start adapting to. They've, mm-hmm. they've just made too many leaps and bounds and then the body started breaking down as, as a result of it. So a lot of runners can identify that once they're injured. They're injured and they're, they look back over the last week and they're like, okay, I know I did something wrong. But some training errors that they might not pick up on would be abrupt changes that might be a little bit too subtle for them to pick up on. So terrain is one. Mm -hmm. So they've gone from running 30 miles a week to still running 30 miles a week, but instead of doing flat surfaces, they've done trail running, which requires a lot more hills or requires a lot more um, change in direction as just uh, an abrupt change. Right. So that's one terrain. The other might be a change in say shoes. So they've kept everything totally consistent, but they've decided to go from a 10 mil heel drop to a five mil heel drop and run exactly the same speed and exactly the same distance as what they once had, uh, which doesn't seem like too much of a change, but when it comes to the evidence and you can actually, if you have insight into what that heel drop is doing on the body, it actually is an abrupt change because there's a lot more strain on the Achilles and calf and feet when you do make that adjustment. And it does require a very subtle transition. But if you go to doing all of your running in these new shoes, that's a huge spike in load and it will increase your likelihood of injury. And so there's some very subtle um, differences that runners might not identify once they are injured. Um, Lack of recovery is another one. So they could keep 
everything exactly like consistent, as consistent as they they are, but they've increased their amount of stress. Maybe they've had a new baby. Maybe they've had a, a job promotion. Um, they've had lack of sleep. Yeah. Uh, maybe their poor quality of sleep is starting to increase. Um, maybe their nutrition isn't as great as it had been the, the week before. And just these things can not spike load, but reduce the body's ability to recover. And so you can get an overuse injury, right. keeping everything exactly the same, but you're not recovering at the same level. And I have um, themes throughout my podcast. I actually just finished a recovery theme throughout December. I'm um, talking about all these concepts yeah. and the they can be some uh, hidden dangers is what I like to call them because who knows that if you just had a baby and now you're getting less quality sleep, that's going to increase your likelihood of injury. Um, it can be a hidden danger that uh, we need to become aware of. Wow. Do you have a sweet spot, Brody, for, for increasing mileage? I think they, they say 10%, but that would take an awful long time to get up to some big yeah. mileage if you've got a race coming up. Well, what do you find is a sweet spot? I agree. I think 10% is very conservative. Um, the more conservative you are, the less likely you, you are of getting injured. Mm-hmm. Um, I often say those who haven't been injured um, over years and years, they're probably not, and they want to increase their running, they're probably not pushing themselves as like aggressively as they, they probably could. Yeah. Um, yes, I do agree, especially for new runners. You just can't go at 10% because you're going to be doing, like you're going to increase your weekly mileage by like one or two, like every couple of weeks, which is way too conservative. Right. But um, I, I don't follow a specific dosage 15 percent is quite nice but mm-hmm. just keep an eye on the higher you um increase that where we're weighing up the risk versus reward if you go to 15 percent, that can be a nice sweet spot for you if you're recovering well right. and if you're doing all the right things with stress sleep nutrition um if you go up to 20 percent, know that you might not get an injury but we are increasing the likelihood of injury if you go to 25 percent, it's going to increase your likelihood as well gotcha. um but that's where it's not just about mileage. We're also looking at speed. Like I said, we're also looking at recovery, looking at what else you're doing. Are you doing strength training? Are you doing cycling? Are you cross training in any other way? And there's a lot of added complexities into what's going to um, increase your likelihood of injury. But just keep that in mind. Just keep in mind the abrupt changes, make some um, subtle changes if you feel like you are making some really big leaps yeah. in your your mileage and just make sure you have enough time to train for a race if you have a marathon that's in like say three months and you're starting from scratch maybe it might be too much of a jump always allow yourself enough time to prepare for a race otherwise like you said the increased likelihood of injury is just going to start creeping up you're going to get injured and then all basically you're going to get uh just he just handed the race organizer 150 dollars entry free yeah and you're going to get yeah. nothing out of the deal recovery or, oh, or you're going to participate in the race and just put up with it and then you're going to continue just like training through this with an achilles or a grumbly sort of calf and then it's going to be achy and really really sore after the race and then you're going to have to manage it for three months instead of three weeks is when you first like if you first identified it and so um a lot of runners like to continue working through an injury and to prepare for this race and they do the race anyway yeah. at a um at a level that they weren't really expecting they're usually a lot less because they have to manage the injury but then it's usually way too stirred up and way too hard to calm down and they're aggravated for months and months afterwards mm, they just give up they're like ah it's fighting stupid the doctor was <laughs> right it's a huge mistake recovery is something 
that especially we I talk to a lot of ultra runners um, on this podcast, and that doesn't seem like something that's in the ultra runner playbook. Recovery? Yeah. What is that? <laughs> I got to run more miles, more miles, more miles. What What do you find recovery wise is a, is a good rule of thumb to follow? Um, make sure you're getting some good sleep. Like that is the number one thing for recovery. If you were to get all of the other recovery methods, so mm-hmm. we're talking about like stretching or say meditation or nutrition or um, supplements, anything. If we were to stack every single other benefit of recovery up, it would not equate to how effective sleep is when it comes to recovery. So if you're not recovering, if you're, if you're getting up earlier to do some recovery methods, stay in bed and keep sleeping because that is your number one tip. If you can't sleep or you have a reduced amount of sleep, napping can be a really nice um, thing to implement. If you do have the luxury of time and you do um, have the luxury of falling asleep during the day, some 20 minutes can be really, really effective. Um, that could be really nice. Um, I had Dave Proctor on who is a ultra, um, ultra runner. Mm -hmm. He was in my recovery month and he is just about to, uh, have his second attempt at running across Canada. So the trans Canadian route and he's a, um, he holds a lot of endurance records and I had him on the podcast talking about his recovery methods and he actually hired a sleep coach during his first attempt across Canada because he recognized the importance of sleep and wanted this like hidden advantage. And so the, um, I actually had the sleep coach on as well. Oh, wow. Um, to talk about like all these strategies and all these methods that they use because they recognize the importance of sleep. And um, Dave also talked about all these other things that he does, like stuff that's not evidence-based, but he's tried and found really effective, which is kind of the approach I wanted for the podcast. And he, he, he said like toe spreaders and cold showers and just like all these other methods that he used, huh. that he found really effective. So um, that was a really nice component as well. Wow. All right. On to stretching. This is going to cause okay, let's go. an argument <laughs> now because there are stretch before people. There are stretch after people. And there are people that are like, stretching is stupid. I'm going to get into my car. What have you found, Brody, is is the reality when it comes to stretching? What does it do? What doesn't it do? Yeah, it's what I found. It's what the evidence has found as well. So I do have a lot of evidence to, to back up my claims. All right. Um, the blanket statement is that stretching, particularly static stretching, doesn't do anything to reduce your likelihood of injury. So it doesn't do anything for injury prevention before a run. Okay. It doesn't do anything for um, performance before a run. And it does, especially when we're looking at recreational athletes. So yeah. if we're looking at um, potentially if you were doing a hundred or 200 meter sprint, you're going to be doing some dynamic warmups. You're going to prepare the body for what's yeah. about to do. But if we get to 5k and beyond, we're looking at, um, stretching beforehand doesn't do anything for, for performance. And then stretching doesn't do anything for recovery, uh, physically after a run. So it's not going to help that delayed muscle soreness. It's not mm-hmm. going to do anything to prevent that. Um, an active recovery afterwards could be nice to keep the blood flowing and keep like circulation going, but static stretching doesn't do that. Walking will do that and a dynamic stretch will do that. Um, so that's what the the evidence shows when it comes to injury and performance when it, for stretching. However, <laughs> I do... Uh, I, that used to be my um, my opinion on it. I, I used to almost um, disregard stretching, but I now have a more um, mature view of things and say <laughs> that if it feels good for you, if if stretching really feels nice for you, then do it. 
but we can't convince ourselves of what it's actually achieving. And so I stretch before a run because I've done some trial and error. I've tried running without stretching. I've tried stretching for 10 minutes. I've tried stretching for two minutes. And I usually find that static stretching around about 10 to 15 seconds, each muscle group just makes me feel better when I get out and start running. I just feel looser. I feel um, more prepared. I just, I'm just out there doing it. Uh, and so that's in my routine. For others, it might be more. I, I, I picture like someone who's a little bit older, maybe in their 60s, who can bene- who finds benefits stretching a lot more to prepare for their run. They're just warming up and they're getting their joints a little bit more um, mobile and then they're out running. So I, would, I do suggest to runners that try different methods, try stretching for a lot, try doing dynamic, try doing static, try five minutes, 10 minutes, two minutes and see what feels best for you before a run and then just go with that um when it comes to like recovery afterwards i do recognize the importance of um what what the the people i interview on my podcast they're called downtime so just like time to relax and let the body unwind actually is really nice for recovery itself particularly mentally Mm -hmm. Um, we do need to recognize the benefits of unwinding mentally Mm -hmm. for recovery otherwise your body's just in this um, psychological stressed state and it doesn't actually switch into recovery mode. Right. So sometimes actually stretching and doing some yoga and doing some meditation can be really nice to unwind the body and just flip the switch to the body start to recover. Mm-hmm. And if stretching does that for you, then that's the psychological benefits, which can have real, um, real success when it comes to actual recovery. But from a um, scientific physiological point of view it doesn't do much for recovery but from the mental component it actually can have a lot of benefit and so that's my more mature version of um (laughs) of stretching okay so what when you say your more mature version on stretching was there a time was there a younger brody sharp fresh out of school you know you're you're now you're a physical therapist you know everything and you see runners at the local, you know, the, the local pub run on a Thursday night and you're walking by and, and forgive me for this horrible impersonation. You're going, listen, mate, stretching doesn't do shit for you. Stop it. I've done plenty of research on it. You're wasting your time. It, was that, were you that person? Uh, it does sound exactly like me, but uh, it's more, it, was, <laughs> it was more, if you can imagine me trying to take down people on Facebook groups, that's, that's kind of like oh. the, um, the approach I was taking when everyone's like, you need to stretch. Stretching is magic. Stretching does this. And I was the one trying to be nice and polite, but my comments always came across a little bit, like a little bit aggressive, um, just saying <laughs> that, you know, stretching doesn't do anything. And so, um, yeah, it wasn't until this like recovery month. So we're talking a couple of months before yeah. that I'd start to recognize the importance of actually mentally unwinding. And if it feels good for you, do it because the placebo effect is super important as well. And so now, like I say, I have a little bit more uh, wisdom upon me (laughs) and um, a little bit less uh, targeting and aggressive when it comes to my comments. I can just see you're right. You know, you're on some runner's your Facebook page, Trail Runners of Australia <laughs> Facebook page, and there's someone going, got to get my new stretching routine, and this is going to help me prevent injury. And you're like, oh, crack the knuckles, and you're like, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time, <laughs> fool. <laughs> it is funny how how age does kind of dull the edges of, of certain yes. opinions. And even now, I'm trying, I like when I, 
I try and help educate people and I am active on Facebook groups and I just like reread my comments and I'm like, it sounds aggressive. It just, it just sounds too much. Like, you know, when you read it back, you're trying to be as polite and help people out as much as you can. Then you read it back. I'm like, God, I've, I, there's a, a there's a undertone to this, uh, this comment that I've made. <laughs> no, because if you try to be nice, like the, it, sometimes trying to be nice comes off as you're being a twat. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It can be like, it can come across as really condescending as well. And it's just like, how can I win? Well, here's what I learned from my years in school. Yeah, and then exactly. they're like, God, that Brody's a dick. I hate that guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I try my best. I try. All right. What about weightlifting, Brody, and, and, mm-hmm. and lifting heavy weights? I'm not going to lie to you. I hate the gym. I avoid it at all costs. I have the upper body of a 10-year-old boy, uh, and, I, and I'm not sure I ever want to change that because I'm, <laughs> I'm scared to go to the gym. But, but, but does lifting heavy weights help or hinder running? Good question. And like, I agree with you. It's so hard to convince runners to start strength training because it's all the meatheads in there brody you walk in there and it's the guys that have they have the sweatpants on because they skip leg day you know the ones i'm talking about (laughs) and they wear those big baggy sweatpants and they have the little spaghetti strap tank top because they got a huge upper body (laughs) and they bring the gallon jug of water with them and they throw the weights down and they 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 smile and laugh at you those guys make it very uh a very unwelcoming place at the gym yeah they um they spend a lot of time working on their what I call their mirror muscles. So any muscle they can see in the mirror, that's the ones they they work on. And it is it can be intimidating. Like you can do some strength training at home if you want. But when I eventually convince runners how important strength training is, then they finally like, yep, I'll get a gym membership. They go to the gym and all they do is bodyweight exercises because it's the exercise that they thrive on. Like they can do a lot of bodyweight squats, calf raises, push ups, like. That's where they thrive and that's sort of where they naturally gravitate towards. But you're not going, if you wanted to become a better runner, if you wanted to be a faster runner and that's endurance runner, Mm -hmm. you need to start increasing the weights in your strength training. And so we're looking at, we usually talk around uh, a certain rep max. Mm -hmm. And so if someone has a a one rep max, that means you've piled on a stack of weight and you can do one repetition and then you couldn't possibly do a second repetition. Right. That's what we call your one rep max. Yeah. If you do like a a six rep max, that is when we pile on some weight and you can do six, but then couldn't do seven. So it's still very, very heavy. Right. Then you have like a 15 rep max where it's a lot lighter and you can do 15 reps and then you struggle to 16. You probably can't do 17. That's um, what we call like a 15 rep max. And runners, uh, with the appropriate training, once your technique is set and once you have the strength to do so, we want to start aiming for around about the eight rep range. Okay. So, the, the weight where you can start to get to around about eight reps and it's really struggling to get that eighth, you, you probably can't do a ninth and you definitely shouldn't be able to do a tenth. It's that kind of weight range. Uh, it does take, if you haven't done any weight training before, it does take months and months and months to get there because it is quite heavy. And if we know anything about the body, 
we definitely don't want to overload it and right. get injured in the gym yeah. because we, we're trying to prevent injuries in the uh, when we're running. So make sure that we adapt, make sure that we have the right technique, make sure we do things properly. But your squats, lunges, calf raises should be starting to gravitate towards the, the heavier range rather than the body weight range, higher rep range. Um, because the evidence definitely shows, there's tons of evidence to show that if you want to increase your running performance, if you want to increase your marathon time, um, implementing some heavy strength training will benefit. Okay. Is there a resource that you would recommend for runners that want to go to the gym but don't want to ask uh, Beefhead Bob for, for advice on lifting weights, the guy who's been, who's been occupying the squat rack for 45 minutes? Is there a good resource? Yep. I, I know we're not doing video, but I do have a book. All right. For, it's not my book. It's um, Richard Blagrove is the author, and I had the pr- privilege of interviewing him on my podcast. The book is called Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Running, and it is uh, the resource where it has some exercises. It has some technique um, things in there, but a lot of evidence around why you should be doing strength training why you should be focusing on the heavier stuff rather than the lighter stuff and it's all evidence-based um he's a really really good researcher um he's from england but covers a lot of running myths as well yeah a lot of people think that if you start implementing strength training then it's going to hinder their running because they're just going to be sore all the time they're going to have muscle soreness the entire time they think they're going to put on weight they think that they need to just focus on the endurance component focus on aerobic capacity he just debunks all of these myths in a really nice succinct fashion and follows the evidence alongside it so um if you want to have a link in the show notes for that then um that would be my number one resource that is fantastic it, it almost seems like the perfect human being brody could be made if you took the dedication to weightlifting that the meatheads had and you had the dedication to the cardio that we all as runners have if we were to <laughs> meld the two together there would yeah. be perfect <laughs> fitness wouldn't there there almost would be perfect fitness yeah i think there's um there's some thing to be said for having a well-rounded um resilient runner yeah um and the resilient runner would be if you could just throw different things at them and they're able to thrive in that like particular environment so yeah you're right if you have someone who's strength training and have a, a high variety of strength training and also running um then yeah you can throw a lot of things at them and they they probably won't break down do they have crossfit in australia they do. I've actually done a couple of months of CrossFit, actually. Have you? <laughs> no, I, I don't yeah. believe you because you would have brought that up right away in the first part of the interview. Uh, yeah, like, well, that's, hey. well I, I'm not currently a CrossFitter, so that's probably why you've noticed the difference. <laughs> is there is there uh, something to that that you found? Is that a sport that does play to better overall fitness or is that just a bunch um, of hooey fooey? No, I like it. I like all types of strength training as long as you're doing it safely, as long yeah. as you're doing it within your capacity to adapt and become stronger. Um, I do like the variety of cross training. I do like if someone, say, does a um, – they go to the gym and they just do squats, lunges, calf raises, there's something to be said for – doing something more dynamic like doing box jumps and changing yeah. direction a lot of times and just throwing different components of the body and what i liked about doing some crossfit was you just go there on the day and they've got a whole bunch of uh, a workout that you're not really too familiar with and so it forces your body to adapt and like yeah. have that variety and um, adapt to a lot of different conditions and so yeah there's something to be said for that and i think hit classes i think there's a lot of other gym classes that do offer that same variety and yeah. that same um 
yeah, just keeping the body guessing and allowing the body to adapt in different ways um, is there's something to be said for that and just makes you a more resilient runner. Right. Maybe, maybe minus the dangerous Olympic uh, lifts that can get yeah. a lot of people yeah. in trouble, throwing a lot of weight exactly. over your head. Yeah. And I think that it should just be quickly said that if you think you're going to put on weight when you start lifting these heavier weights, mm-hmm. um, if you're running throughout the week, if you're doing a whole, if you're say doing your strength training twice a week, but you're running three to four times a week, you're not going to put on weight as much as you think. You're not going to be those meatheads that start working on those mirror muscles and putting on a ton, a ton of weight because what they're doing, their strength training is totally different to your strength training. They're eating a massive amount to try and put on weight and they're, um, they're at the gym like five, six times a week and not doing any cardio. And Mm so, the body does a really wonderful thing of prioritizing aerobic exercise over everything else. So if you were to combine the two, the body will adapt and prioritize running over strength training. So you're still going to get the benefits of strength training without turning into a gym like meathead. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, Brody, there's so many things on the list of the things to talk about, and I'm not going to bring up all of them because that gives you an excuse to come back on. You see, I, this this oh, is a more than a, happy to right. This would be another. We have another episode of the Adventure Jogger with with Brody <laughs> Sharp from the Run Smarter Podcast at some point, just to kind of you know get, get some more great information because this has been slam packed, filled with a lot of great information and and just a lot of good uh, stuff to take into everyone's everyday uh, running repertoire. But what I want to know from you, Brody is I've often said I, I, I don't trust a man or a woman who hasn't shit their pants while they've ran. Oh, damn. Have, have you ever <laughs> shit your pants while running Brody Sharp? Not while running. I have had some extremely close calls, though. (laughs) (laughs) I was um, a couple of years ago, I was actually running like in the bush, like in the woods and was extremely close found like a, a public toilet and were, I could hardly like I got my shorts down just in time <laughs> let's say that <laughs> you gambled but you won yes yes just <laughs> all right just I don't know if I want to take that gamble again though. <laughs> now you like to run half marathons uh in you know 10k and that sort of thing so do you don't eat a whole lot while you run but what is your your favorite running food um during a run yeah. I would say I don't uh I would say I probably haven't eaten during a run Really? During my, mar- I think bananas were a big component during like my marathon, just yeah. because they were available during the um, at the aid stations. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'd say bananas and probably some like muesli bars. I do um, some longer bike rides, mm-hmm. um, which my fuel would be some sort of muesli bars. Uh, what the hell's a very- muesli bar? We don't have those in the states. Uh like a like a a nut bar or like a. Um, like a granola yeah, seeds, bar? grains. That, that oh, sort of okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. You'll have them. Okay. We just call them something different. Yeah, they're probably just called seed and nut bars or or, or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> favorite fav, favorite gel flavor? Um, black currant. Oh, oh, wow. What's your least favorite? Uh, lemon. 
Yeah. Okay. Lemon lemon lime's not bad when it's hot out. That's it's like mm. it's like there's certain times of the year. Like if it's really cold out, you do not want a lemon lime gel because you're like this is yeah. like, this is. A, but if it's really hot out, you don't want a salted a caramel gel. I would bet that in Australia, you probably don't have the god awful junk food flavored gels that we have here. Like I bet you'd be hard mm. pressed to find a <laughs> birthday cake gel in australia <laughs> i have not come across that no <laughs> <laughs> is there vegemite flavored gels in australia i'd like to taste it oh no we definitely don't have vegemite gels um i'd like to try the birthday cake one just like not during a run i think i, I think i'd like to try it just you know just it's, to see how it goes we have a lot of weird ones here and we've done episodes where we've tried the weird gels um ah. there was one called tutti fruity and tutti okay. tutti fruity kind of tasted like like bad toothpaste, Ugh. Brody. Is okay, be the best way I could I could describe <laughs> that is tastes an awful lot like 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 bad bad toothpaste altogether. Well, you know, I, I'll kind of I half trust you, Brody, since you nearly okay. nearly crapped your pants. <laughs> well, how many times have you crapped your pants during a run twice twice okay yeah cool yeah yeah never never I can tr- trust you yeah yeah never trust a fart though brody that's the thing you can't because <laughs> that's the- another risk that i sometimes take yeah because those can turn into sharts real quick and then you're yep. yeah you're, you're you're down with shorts <laughs> um what is the big running shoe in uh, in australia i mean you probably have all the same brands we have but what are the most popular ones there Oh, look, you know, anything carbon fiber right now is just going gangbusters. So, um, yeah, I'd say like Nike Vaporflies. I'm not much of a shoe guy, um, which is often very surprising for people because people yeah. reach out on social media and they're like, I just bought this um, Adidas like type of runner. I'm like, is it any good? I'm like, I don't know types of shoes. I know shoe characteristics. And yeah. I know like what the effects those shoe characteristics have. But I'm one who has had two different types of shoes my entire running career and I have not deviated because um, I've seemed to thrive in them. So I don't really mix and match and um, test things out. All right. What are those shoes, Brody? You said them. You can't just leave us without knowing what the shoes are. um, I have these. They're both Innovates, um, which I'm pretty sure you guys have. Mm -hmm. We do. Yep. Um, I have an Innovate. I think it's called Light. 150 mm-hmm. um it's an extremely minimalist shoe yeah um hang on i'll show you yeah brody's gonna get his shoes everybody so i can see them okay yeah that's so a I pretty one here that's a pretty um, minimal shoe. extremely light extremely flexible and that's what i do probably about 80 percent of my running in yeah and so it's like flimsy kind of like no support yeah zero um but extremely light and i i am more of a four foot runner and yeah. so um the I guess the support is, isn't necessarily like necessary, but then when I need a break from my calves and my feet and all that sort of thing, I do have an innovate. I don't know the, what the brand is. The type is actually called, but it's like a 10 mil um, heel height, um, heel stack and just like offers a lot more support. So I can um, offer my body a little bit of relief from the feet, calf Achilles complex uh, by running in those. And like I said, I'm managing like a foot issue at the moment. I'm still running a little bit, but I'm wearing those more protective kind of shoes because I know if I have these flimsy shoes that I run in, it's a lot more load through my my foot, uh, which might overload it. So making smart decisions on that front. Um, I would say you got to try some Hocus. You ever want to feel yeah, like it's running on a memory foam <laughs> mattress, Brody? <laughs> <laughs> I will try them one day. I, I, and I do hear really, really good things. I do think there is a place for... Um, running in the hawkers so um 
maybe one day are you a, a runner brody that um are s- such a slave to your watch that for you would be kilometers um yes do, it is in kilometers yeah, yes do, do, uh, you, I, do you do you run in circles in the parking lot if you're not at a, at the round number kilometers you're like oh christ i ran 9.6 <laughs> kilometers i gotta get this up to 10 and so you just kind of <laughs> run in circles in the parking lot I have been known to, yes. Um, it's usually just circles out the front of my house, but uh, it's not necessarily um, the the focused on the metrics. It's me being just like OCD to trying to get to a nice even number. And so, yes, it is. Um, I do find more liberty going out and not recording anything. I'm doing more of that these days, like getting out in nature, just running without um, Strava or recording anything on my devices. But, but, Brody, but- if, if it's not on Strava, it didn't happen. Yeah, I know, I know, and I'm happy with it not happening sometimes um, because sometimes it's at an embarrassingly slow or an embarrassingly short distance just because I'm managing injuries and I like to recover. And right. so um, sometimes it's good if people don't know and sometimes it's good if it doesn't happen. That's true. <laughs> yes, yeah. trying to keep, if I do run and if I do record and I get to, um, and I do notice now Strava has two decimal places for the kilometer. So it's like not just 9.8 kilometers, it's now 9.8 six or 9.87 so i have to get clear to the 10 and make sure it's clearly on the 10 just so i can satisfy my own ocd ways <laughs> do you ever mix things up brody and, and run with miles do you ever do miles for- no i don't. I don't i don't even know the conversion of miles i have a very rough estimate but um that'd just be ludicrous are you kidding me yeah you start running in miles you'll start thinking you know everything and every and anywhere they find oil you'll show up and you'll be like wait a minute that's what that's mine yeah. that's mine now yeah run the- i'll be honest with you um um, kilometers, I haven't been able to make sense of that at all. And it's probably the same way for you with miles. You're like, because kilometers at least makes sense, right? Like kilometers is based on a unified metrics or a unified system of measurement where miles is kind of like, oh, it's foot. I don't know. how. It's kind of, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's more of a, Kind of a mess, but it throws me off uh, for sure. So I, I had my, I had a Sunto years ago, Brody, that I couldn't figure out how to turn how to turn off kilometers, and I was like, oh. "Damn, that mile was fast." I'm like, "Oh, it's a kilometer." <laughs> <laughs> Damn. The one time you think you're actually like a superstar, and then reality hits. Right. It's like that did not seem as long as as I as my normal five mile run, and my God, I was fast. Oh crap! It's kilometers. <laughs> Crap. Damn. Well, if I ever convert to miles, then I just seem extremely slow, don't I? You, oh, yeah. You really. You're right. You can't go the other way. No, unless we find another um, distance metric that's shorter than kilometers. Maybe, maybe then I can go to there. Maybe, or maybe just as a recovery, you should recover in miles ah, and go smart, for slow. Smart. That's see, we we tackled something. We had some some mm. good science on there and some good baloney at the end. <laughs> it's the Run Smarter podcast. You can check it out uh, anywhere you, you get your podcasts. If you want to spice it up a little bit, get a little bit of science in your running, get a little bit of facts in your science. Brody Sharp, thanks for coming on the Adventure Jogger, man. Thanks, Ryan. Had a lot of fun. This is a good time. By the way, Adventure Jogger gear on the adventurejogger.com slash gear. Adventure Jogger joggers, t-shirts, all that good stuff. Go check it out. We are 100% listener supported. You can make a monthly pledge on our Patreon page. Just search the Adventure Jogger on Patreon or go to theadventurejogger.com. Join the community on Facebook and Instagram by searching The Adventure Jogger. And subscribe to The Adventure Jogger wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Oh, 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 oh,